G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. The story. In February 2012, Orand was diagnosed with stage 4 with colon cancer, which had metastasized to his liver and his lungs. So that was a huge shock for us. It's not something we ever thought we'd ever have to deal with or ever have in our lives. And the biggest shock to us was that the doctors actually said he had had it for about five years already. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Well, a challenging one today as we hear Angela Engelbrecht share her life journey. Angela is originally from the UK and married her husband, Orand, in South Africa. She was interviewed by Karen Hunt shortly after they moved to Australia for treatment for Orand's cancer. Incidentally, Angela and Karen have gone on to become really good friends since this interview and we'll have an update for you at the end of their chat. Let's go back to the early years of your own personal journey. Born in England, which part? I was born in Manchester in a little town called Withinshaw. And what did your family look like and what was your childhood like? Well, when I was two, we actually moved to South Africa for the first time. We kind of went back and forth for a few years, like all good immigrants, can't decide. And I have a brother and a sister that are a lot older than me. My sister is nine years and my brother seven years older than me. So I kind of was brought up more as a a single child, although we were within a family. We weren't churchgoers. My parents never took us to church. We never had Sunday school. We never had any of that kind of religious upbringing. Um, So your memory of England as such isn't very strong? I was very young when we left England, yes, but I went back quite a lot. We went back every year, sometimes for three, four months at a time. So I have quite a good memory of England and I know it quite well. My whole family's in England. So they're all still there now? Yes, they're all still there. So would you say that South Africa is more your home? Yes, definitely. Yeah, because I did my schooling there. A big part of my career and my life was there. But for 44 years, I was in South Africa. So as a child then in South Africa, what were you good at? What did you love and what did you hope to do one day when you left school? I loved horse riding. I used to do a lot of show jumping. That was my big hobby in life. Horse riding took up six days a week. The only day I'd never rode was a Monday because Monday was when the stables were closed and there was the rest day for the horses. So I did that all the time. The only other thing I did, I in school I did high jump. I loved high jump. Yeah, that was about it. I didn't do anything else. So were you sporty besides the high jump? No. Hated running, was never good at it, was terrible at swimming. (laughs) So I wasn't really a sporty person at all. I did a high jump and I did long jump and that was about it. So then what led you as a young woman in your mid-twenties then to go to uni and to study accounting and get into that area? I always wanted to continue studying. I didn't care actually what it was because I felt... As long as I study, my brain will always be active. And um, I started working at a company where I met Arendt, my husband. 
I was actually just working as a contractor there in their creditors department. I was helping out a friend of mine that um, uh, needed help in that division, and I was actually working from home. I wasn't even, you know, working there permanently. And she offered me a position in the company, and I started working there. And Arend was also working in the same company. He was actually the financial manager at that stage. I was actually very unhappy in this company, and I phoned Arend one day and. He actually suggested to me, why don't I start an accounting firm? He had, on the sideline, had one or two clients already, and he said, I can take over those and start this accounting firm. And I was like, yeah, I can't do this. I can't stop my own business. And then I asked him, if I I do this, would you be able to then sign off the accounts for me? Because with me not being qualified, I still had another um, three years of studying to do before I'd be a qualified accountant. And he said to me, well, you know what, do it and I will draw, draw the financials up for you, he said, and I'll help you where I can. And, you know, so I at least had someone qualified. And that's what I just resigned and started doing. Cut a long story short, a year later, Arnd and I were liaising business-wise for quite a few months. And then he left the company where we used to jointly work and he started working in another company. And we actually, so you know, we saw each other so much, but he was working during the day, and I was, but then I needed to see him at night to kind of cover the queries that I didn't know and the things I didn't know and financials that had to be done and income tax returns that had to be done. So he was working at night. So what was happening is we were spending up till midnight, one o'clock in the morning working together. I didn't have time to date anyone else and neither did he. <laughs> so we kind of just said one day, why don't we start dating? It was very awkward in the beginning, but you know, um, we were extremely comfortable together. We were actually best friends. So a year later, he joined me in the business. Did you have any comprehension then of the God factor in this situation? No, not at all. <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah, I always prayed. I've always believed in Jesus. He's kind of always been there, but has never been a, a major factor in my life. I would never say, oh, you know, before I make this decision, let me pray about it or let me ask God and, and, and kind of wait for an answer. It, that was never part of how my life was. Arend was a lot more religious, if I can say, than what I was. So we kind of came from two total opposites from a religious point of view. In fact, it was funny because Arnold actually started telling me Bible stories because I actually didn't know very many at all. And um, and in South Africa, religion is not in schools, which I think that's why I'm so grateful where my kids are is that Christ is a big part of the school. And, and for me now, that is hugely important because I kind of know growing up not having God in my life and not really knowing that is really where I could turn to when times were bad. You know, and also when times are good, it's not just that. But I'm trying to give it to my kids now because I realize how important it is to know that God is there and Jesus is there. And and I was very, I still am very green as far as, as Jesus is concerned. I can't quote you quotes in a Bible. I'm learning a lot of stories, but I know my relationship and my walk with him. But it hasn't been this great Christian walk from childhood, not at all. Um, I think I'm, I'm learning more now. And as I kind of look back and I see how things have progressed, I, I realize how not in control I actually was when I thought I was in control. But everything that's happened has happened for such a specific reason. There's been no coincidences in it. Although at the time I thought, wow, this is an amazing coincidence. Or, 
Yeah, how did I see you here? How come I met you here? And kind of has all worked out that I think God needed me to meet Aaron. So Aaron could actually introduce me to God, if, if that kind of makes sense. It was like a, a real... Like ground, because I say I didn't really know anything. I knew that there's a story of Noah, that God created Earth, and Joseph and Mary with baby Jesus. That's the stories, you know. So that was kind of, I think, the beginning, and the end of my knowledge on it. And Aaron used to just tell me little stories here. He still does now. So I think that was maybe God's way that He knew I needed someone that I would respect to be able to tell me these things. Otherwise, I I wouldn't listen. I was rebellious. Together, you birthed three beautiful kids. Let's hear about those early family years and what eventuated from there. Okay, well, as I said to you earlier, Aaron joined the business with me and then we continued our business for a few years. When I fell pregnant with Ashton, an important thing for me was to be mum. So I didn't want to run a business because at that stage we were actually putting in a lot of hours. We were working 18 hours a day. I wanted to actually be a mom. I didn't want to miss out my children's childhood at all. So when Ashton was born, then I stopped working, which is a good job considering I had three children in three years. So I stopped working and Aaron continued in the business and I brought up the children and I didn't actually start working until Azara which is my my baby, until she actually went into um, like a playgroup, which she was two years old. So once my last one had actually gone into a playgroup, that's when I started working again. Kids went through preschool into primary school. We got involved. Um, We were putting a lot of hours into the business, but we were also very fortunate because we had our own business, we took a lot of time off. So, you know, once the kids started getting into sports at school and they had their sports events, we took a lot of time off. We've always been very involved in the kids. Obviously, that's an extremely important part for both Aaron and I. We've always said that, you know, we had children so that we could raise them, not for a school to raise them, not for any of our parents to raise them, but for us to raise them. And and we were, we were fortunate that we could, but we kind of made the decision that we would rather work at night once the the kids had gone to bed and catch up for the time we'd lost during the day. But we made sure that we always saw everything that they did. You're listening to The Story. Today, Karen Hunt is chatting with Angela Engelbrecht, who's sharing her life journey. As we heard, Angela is originally from the UK and her husband, Orend, is from South Africa. Next, we'll hear how their lives were radically altered as Orend is suddenly diagnosed with cancer. That and more when we return. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401 132 888. Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax and this is The Story. We're continuing with Karen Hunt chatting with Angela Engelbrecht, who's originally from the UK and her husband Orend is from South Africa. Next, we'll find out how their lives were radically altered when Orend was diagnosed with cancer. Let's focus now on the year 2012. Early in that year, something major happened, which obviously affected your family and is a part of what's brought you to Australia. That's right, yes. In February 2012, Orend was diagnosed with stage 4 with colon cancer, which had metastasized to his liver and his lungs. 
So that was a huge shock for us. It's not something we ever thought we'd ever have to deal with or ever have in our, in our lives. And I think when you hear this big sea, I think we were just so shocked. You know, what? Like, was that seriously? He's got cancer. This just can't be. And, you know, and they say cancer's a silent killer. And I think the, the biggest shock to us was that the doctors actually said he had had it for about five years already. This is why he was so far advanced by the time he was diagnosed. But he had no, no warnings. There was no symptoms. He had no warning signs. There was literally nothing. The first time that we kind of... Well, I said to Arndt, I think there's something wrong, is in December... Arendt started losing weight. Arendt was a big man. You know, he, he's always weighed about 110 kilos. So, of course, he was very excited when he lost a kilogram. And the next week, he had lost another kilogram. And the week after, he had lost a kilogram. And, and it was wonderful in the beginning because we were all excited. Yeah, you were losing weight. But by the end of December, he had lost a good 10 kilos. And we kind of realized there's something seriously wrong because he hadn't changed his diet. He wasn't eliminating anything. We hadn't done anything, but he was losing weight. And then in February, he had lost his appetite and he didn't want to eat. And even things he loved to eat, he all of a sudden just didn't want to eat. And, and I was battling to get him to enjoy anything. He just completely went off food. The one evening, he actually stood up. And as he was walking, I kind of looked at him. I said to him, you mean sitting in chocolate? And he said to me, no. And I had a look, and obviously he just had blood on the, the back of his trousers. And I said to him, there's a serious problem. To be honest, he actually thought it was hemorrhoids. And when we got to the doctor, he did blood tests on him and he phoned us the next day and he called us in and he said you know what everything's 100% your whole body's fine all your blood tests have come back fine except for the one which is what he called a CEA count which is the cancer count and he said this is very high I'm sending you to a specialist he didn't tell us at that stage that it's definitely cancer because he didn't know he said he's got to do the gastroscopy they did the colonoscopy and when he came out the doctor came through to me and he said to me he has got a cancerous tumour in the colon not that there's ever a good place, but he did have it in a good place because it was 51 centimetres up from the rectum. So that meant that he wouldn't have to have a bag, which a lot of people, what happens with colorectal cancer is if, if it's too close to the rectum, they have to have a bag. So they have to actually cut off that muscle in total. So he was very lucky. In the meantime, what, what we actually decided to do is because we, we were on our own emotional turmoil at that stage as well. I, I asked my mom. You know, I kind of said to her, look, Arendt has been diagnosed with cancer. We need to digest this. Would she please just look after my children for the next day or two? And we flew down to Cape Town. And when we were there, we went to get a, another opinion from a colon specialist in Cape Town. We had an appointment with him and we chatted to him. And we took time out for ourselves. Kind of did a lot of crying. Then I think that's when I kind of started speaking to God. I was never actually angry at God, but I kind of... God, why, why are you doing this to our family? We're a good family. We, we've done everything that parents should do. We've tried to be good to our kids. We've tried to be good as a couple. And we kind of get slapped with this cancer. And I just felt, you know, go and give this to, I don't know, someone that's in jail that's been murdered someone or something, you know. But then, yeah, so we came back from Cape Town and Arendt was booked in the next week. We removed the primary tumour. And I say the, the 
actual operation went wonderful because he didn't have to have a bag and he managed to cut all the cancer and all the tumors out of the colon. Because I had my children so close together, <laughs> I became very good friends with my gynecologist. <laughs> and actually my husband became more friends with him than what I did. <laughs> when he saw me at the hospital, he came and he said to me, no, what are you doing here? And I said to him, no, they're busy operating on Ireland upstairs. And he asked me what was going on. And he's like, oh, no, I've got to find out. And I was so blessed actually because he knew the surgeon and he just went upstairs and while he was in the theatre he said no I'm coming in and he actually went into the theatre while Orand was under and he came out and he said to me Angela I'm going to tell you what you're dealing with now he says this isn't just in the colon he says this is spread to the liver he says and I can see the tumours on the liver he says he's got quite a few of them and he says and they're about the size of cricket balls so you know he was very apologetic and he said he's like, I'm really sorry that we've got to go through this and he says and he's sorry that this is a journey that we've been put on he says because it's it's not going to be a nice one he says and it's, it's going to be really hard he says and kind of from what I've seen there's never going to be any hope for you in this journey Oren's way too gone way too far down the path for any positive results to come out of it so it was it was hard but I don't know I just I kind of ignored it I don't know it, it was like you know this was happening to someone else it's over there it's it's not us it's not our family because it just that can't happen to us type of thing he started on the one lot of chemo. Well, he had actually had that throughout the whole of 2012. Then in December 2012, he actually went in to have a liver dissection. Unfortunately, that's where everything actually went wrong. The surgeon just came out and said the operation didn't go well at all. He says, I, I removed the liver. He says, but there's still another tumour that's on the hepatic vein. He says, which he couldn't remove because it was too close to the vein and which is the main vein leading to the liver. But to be honest, he says, I don't think he's going to make it till morning. And this is the end of 2012? Yes. And I kind of put a message out on Facebook and to all my friends and I said, please, Orange is critical. The doctor has said he's not going to make it through now. Please just pray. Everybody has to pray for him. That's the, the only thing that is left is just to pray. And anyway, I remember actually walking up and down the corridor and I saw this little faint light and I came running and I said to my sister, it's morning. The sun's up. It's morning. He's still alive. They haven't gone and told me he's dead yet. So we like went outside and we ran around in the flowers and we celebrated. No, yay. And I'm like, thank you, Lord. We made, and I kind of, at that stage, I had that idea that when he said he wouldn't make it till morning, if I see light, it means it's morning, so he's there. <laughs> so he kind of battled through, and he did come out of that. And I kind of thought this was this was it. He's on a road to recovery. This is fabulous. He's doing very well. And four days later, he crashed again. You know, they've been trying to do everything they possibly could for him. They have been battling with him. They've been, you know, he's been fighting, literally fighting for his life. For all intents and purposes, he had actually already passed away. And the doctor said to me, what he can do is he's going to put him on a respirator. He says, and he'll guarantee me 24 hours that he will keep him alive. He says, I must please bring my children. Let them come and say goodbye to their father. If there is any other family member that wants to come and say goodbye to him, he'll guarantee me 24 hours. After that, he said he he can't guarantee me any more time. And uh, you can imagine how stressful and crazy that was, you know, to come and have to tell your kids to say their father I found very hard you know I can't imagine that I really really can't in my prayers I actually prayed and I said Lord please bring my husband home for Christmas because it all means so much 
for me and for my family to have my children and their father at home for Christmas. And he came out of hospital on the 24th of December. And he walked out of that hospital on the 24th of December. So it was, yeah, an amazing story. And I think that's when I, I kind of really realized that everything has been God. I had proof from the top liver specialist in the world. He's ranked number eight in the world. He's no idiot. I had him telling me, everyone was telling me that you just can't do it. And our minister at that time just said to me, he kind of gave me, I can't even remember what it was from, but he kept saying to me, fear not. And he just came to say, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Just hold on. And that's kind of always what I just said. And I just kept saying, fear not, fear not, fear not, over and over. And I kept saying, just trust in God, just trust in God. Whatever happens, just trust in God. And that's kind of what I held on to. Angela, here you are in Australia. What is the current scenario for your family? One of the main reasons why we moved here is that we wanted Aaron to get good medical care. So we actually came over here to see if he would be able to get treatment here. We came over and Dr. Mattis took him on. In South Africa, Aaron would never be able to get onto any trial of anything. But here he had the opportunity that if a trial comes up for colon or liver and lung cancer, he'd actually have the opportunity to go on to that. So that was a major reason why we actually ended up coming over to Australia. Also, obviously, for the security and the life for my children. Um, there isn't a cure for Ireland at this stage. We always hope and we always pray that there is a cure. But he continues now with chemo. And this is a better life. So if, if and when God decides to take Ireland, I know I'm safe here. I'm secure here. My children have a good life here. And they can actually make themselves a life in Australia. So that is basically where we're sitting at the moment. He continues with chemo and we pray every day and we actually had prayer healers out to Orange to come and pray for him and I can honestly say that our whole journey in hindsight was I think God intended us to be here because we've met some of the most amazing people here. Aaron's been able to speak to some amazing people and I think his story has affected a lot of people you know and everyone everyone that knows us and our friends that we have managed to build up already they know that God's got us and I believe God's got us our whole our whole journey has been actually one to build up my belief in God and it's given me it's given me a lot of hope. It's, it's made me realize that God is everything in my life. In fact, God is the only thing that's keeping us here and that's keeping us strong and keeping my family strong and giving us hope. And, you know, the prayer healers that we met, it's amazing to actually watch and it just fulfills me every single time that somebody prays for us or, you know, we meet someone and they say they're going to pray. It's deepened my belief in Jesus, very much so. You know, it's only looking back I realize that all these things is Jesus, it's his miracles. And Arend is a walking miracle to that because everybody said that was it. It was at the end. And you know what? We are two years later and he's still here. And his diagnosis was eight months, maximum of 12 months originally. Every single day we have is actually a miracle. He now has all the tumors back in his liver. He's, he's got five tumors on the liver again. So he's got tumors in his lungs. He now has it in his stomach lining. It's progressing, but if, if you see him, 
he just does not look ill. He does everything. He still has the strength to get up every single day. And if that isn't God, I mean, who is it? It definitely isn't me and it definitely isn't him. God's miracles are still out there for everybody. I mean, if he can do it for us, who, especially for me, who didn't even actually really grow up knowing Jesus and wasn't really kind of bothered with him, to be honest, has proved to me that he exists and proved he's out there every step. Well, honey, hang on to your hope. There's a little expression that I was told a long time ago, which says, go for faith, express it in love, and then you've got hope. And I pray that for you, for Arendt, for your three children, you're here in this pretty amazing country. Very, very amazing country. I hope and pray for the best for all of you as a family. Thanks so much for sharing with us. Thanks for your time. Wish you well, hey? Now, thank you ever so much. I appreciate it. God bless. That was Karen Hunt chatting with Angela Engelbrecht. And I'm sad to say that Angela's dear husband, Orend, passed away just a few months after this chat was recorded in November of 2014. As I mentioned earlier, Karen and Angela have become dear friends since this interview. Karen says, understandably, Angela misses her man daily but has stayed close to God, engaged with her church and active in her community with work and volunteer projects. Karen goes on to say that their children have also developed close friendships and that Angela has been supported consistently by her local church family and friends. I think it bears repeating the wise words Karen shared with Angela at the end of their chat, words that are so appropriate in situations like this. She said, Go for faith, express it in love, And then you've got hope. Comforting words for us all. Well, if you can relate to Angela's story and would like someone to pray with, our prayer line is 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. We'd love to pray for you at that number, 1-800-772-936. Well, thanks for joining us for Angela's story. I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.